you take your seats, take out your swords, grab your Bibles, turn if you would to the 24th chapter of Luke's Gospel. And this morning, oddly enough, we've managed to be right on time with this particular resurrection passage. Not sure how the Lord works that out in His timing, but this is the passage that we've landed on here. And remember that the Gospels record four different perspectives written by four different authors with different views, different understandings, different things that are pertinent to them. And so it is always necessary to compare the Gospel events in order that we get the whole picture, and we'll do that this morning. But here in Luke's Gospel, this morning, the question for us is, where did he go? That was really the question that the disciples were forced to answer, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, the ladies that went to the tomb, that Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, all had to come to grips with. Where did he go? What happened? And in Luke's Gospel, we find a central point, and that point being that they were very perplexed. They didn't understand. It was a mystery to them initially. And that really is the place that many people find Easter in their lives today. They're perplexed. What's this all about? Uh, for Hershey's, it's about selling chocolate. Uh, for Peeps, it's about selling chickens made out of marshmallows covered with sugar. Uh, for many people, it's about the Easter bunny. For others, it's about Easter eggs. But for we who know and love the Lord, it's the greatest day in human history. It's about none of those other things. And, and in fact, as we celebrate this morning, uh, we're no longer perplexed as the disciples were that first Easter morning. We are very much aware of what happened to the Lord Jesus. And because He is alive, because He did rise from the grave, because He lives forevermore, so as our psalm said, we will see Him one day face to face. And that's going to be another glorious day in the lives of each of us who know the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning as we have gathered together on this most wonderful of all of the holidays that we celebrate throughout the year, Lord, really even greater than Christmas. Lord, it's on this morning that we celebrate your conquering death and you providing eternal life. And so, Lord, pray for those that maybe are here this morning that are skeptics, that, God, they would lose that perplexity and come as John did to believe. He looked in, he saw, and he believed. And so this morning... Would you just strengthen us with your word, cause us to hear, to know, and to understand. Lord, to be blessed, encouraged, and strengthened. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 1 here in Luke chapter 24. And it says here, And now on the first day of the week, and that day would be Sunday, that was when the disciples met. Uh, It was the first day of the Jewish week. Very early in the morning... They and certain other women with them. And again, we know who this was by reading the other gospel accounts. This is Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is Mary Magdalene. This is Salome. This is several ladies that gather together. They're heading to the tomb. And remember our discussion as we saw in the the burial of Jesus. There were really two. Joseph of Arimathea places Jesus in the tomb in a shroud in the Sindon. And then along comes uh, Nicodemus, and he completes the process. Jesus has now been wrapped. He's in the grave. He's been, for all intents and purposes, placed in a, a place of bondage. And I would remind you that to some degree, uh, I, being a camp director for 20 years, I've seen an awful lot of people wrapped in duct tape. <laughs> and, and when you wrap somebody in duct tape, they don't, they don't move. There is no way in the world they're going anywhere. And so imagine Jesus now having been wound and wrapped tightly in those cloths. He's not moving his hands. 
He's not going to be able, you know, he didn't have a Swiss Army knife inside his tunic to where he could kind of make a little hole and work his way out. And even if he had, we're going to find that the Gospels tell us uh, he didn't do that because the grave clothes are going to be in one place together with the two parts that were normally done because in a Jewish burial there were two things that happened ultimately. The body itself was wrapped in its entirety all the way to the neck. The face was left until the very end so that those who were doing the process could look and gaze upon the face for it would be the last thing that they would see and then they would very carefully wrap the head alone. Very important that you understand that because it gives truth and credence to what the scriptures actually tell us about Jesus. So here certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing spices which with they had prepared. You see, they're coming back to complete the process. They had joined in with Joseph of Arimathea. They had brought some. Nicodemus completes that. So they think, hey, we, we're going to go back. We need to finish this off. But they found that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. Interestingly enough, that stone was rolled away not so Jesus could get out, but so that they could get in. Jesus was gone. He'd passed right through those limestone walls like they weren't even there. That great stone that was rolled in its place, if you travel to the garden tomb today, the trough that hold it, held the stone, uh, probably about six to eight inches wide, that, that piece of uh, rock would have been several tons, more than likely. The stone's in front of the door when they leave him inside. And then they went in. And did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now again, remember, you have to look at all four gospel accounts. Each one of them does not record all of the details. Each one records some of the details. And so it's very important to put these together. This is where people come to those conflicted thoughts in their mind. Well, you know, the gospel of John says this, the gospel of Matthew says that, and Mark says this. You know, Luke, he's way off. But the fact of the matter is, they were individuals. John came with Peter to the tomb. He saw one thing. Luke is writing after the fact. Mark writes after the fact. And so we would expect their stories to be somewhat different, if they're actually true. And it happened that they were greatly perplexed about this. I'm guessing so. And behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. We're told by Matthew that they were in fact angels. And then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they, that would be the angels, said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Great question, isn't it? Probably the question I would have asked. You know, where is he? Where'd he go? Who's taken him? And so the angels are giving the answer to that question that was no doubt in their mind, the perplexity that had overcome them. He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. Remember what he said? You see, Scripture, when it declares that without faith it is impossible to please God, is the truth. You you cannot become a child of God by simple force of argument, by just evidence. Though the evidence is wonderful and the evidence is clear, you can't become a child of God by simply an intellectual argument. By seeing a handful of things, checking some boxes, and all of a sudden, boom, done. Like we would do in mathematics. One plus one is supposed to equal two, amen? One minus one equals zero. Amen. They're they're simple equations. They're hard and fast laws of mathematics. But salvation comes by God's grace through faith. Amen. 
It is not something that you can simply intellectually come to terms with. And so there are some things here that cause our intellect to be stirred, to be challenged, to be moved. And then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And so here in this crowd are the disciples who have fled. They've run away from the Lord Jesus at the crucifixion. They've gathered together. We're not told exactly where they are, but there's some place in the general vicinity of the garden tomb. Maybe they were on the hillside above it. I don't know. Today there stands an Arab cemetery on the top of that hill. Not sure. But they were nearby. And it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostle. Now, I I want you to notice something, that the testimony of women was not only not normally heard, it was not admissible in a court. Women were not allowed to bear testimony about facts, period. So the fact that this is mentioned is another indicator of the truth of it, because it would have been the last thing that any Jewish man would have written down. It would have been the last thing that anyone who was trying to obscure the truth of the matter would have put pen to paper, parchment. And so the ladies begin to expound to the apostles, the wonderful, the brave apostles all huddled together someplace nearby the garden tomb. And their words seemed like them to be idle tales. Now, isn't that one of the things that's often spoken of about the resurrection? It's a myth. It's an idle tale. It's something that people tell to make themselves feel good about the ridiculous religion that is a crutch because they're not strong enough to be a humanist or a realist. You, you see, even the, even the apostles for a moment thought, hey, not sure about this whole resurrection thing. It seemed to be an idle tale. And, check out what's said next. If you were writing your own account of what happened on that first Easter morning, would you be so bold as to say, I didn't believe a word of it? And yet Luke readily admits, writing, they did not believe them. I, I, I self-deprecate every once in a while, but I'm not sure I'd put it in writing in Scripture. He did not believe. He didn't believe. So don't be too surprised when people don't initially believe what we believe about the resurrection. It transcends, in some cases, the laws of physics. Transcends some of the basic laws of science. It is, in fact... To us this day, miraculous. And it needs to be miraculous and stay miraculous. It's not something you see every day. Amen? If it was something that you could explain that way, it would no longer be a miracle and it would no longer be unique. But Peter, you got to love Peter. You just have to love Peter. Peter not only doesn't believe, he's going to go check it out for himself. Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and John reminds us that the other disciple who was with him went. John very rarely used his own name, and so that was him. So Peter and John are now in a foot race to the tomb. And stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed marveling to himself at what had happened. That word marveling means that he was exposed to something he could not explain. That there was something that happened in his heart and in his mind through the visual perception of what he saw that he did not get. And so he is still not believing at this point in time. John's Gospel tells us that John looked in, saw exactly the same things, and it was sufficient for him to believe. Family of God... Very frequently, when you introduce people to the real Jesus, some, the light goes on like that. It's like, yes, I need to know who the Savior is. I believe I'm a sinner, and I believe I need to become saved. I know that I don't have the answers. I believe that God has them. Some people are like that. Others need a little more time. 
Some need some further convincing by the Holy Spirit. Notice I said by the Holy Spirit, not by you. No one ever saves anyone. Do you understand that? When people say, you know, I want to, and people do all the time, I want to thank you for saving me. I didn't save you. The Lord Jesus saved you. There's only one Savior. All I did was present the good news, the gospel. And you heard it, received it, and believed it. That's what happened. And so for some people, as is in this case, they're looking at the empty tomb going, I don't get it. John looks at it, I believe. The ladies look at it, they go tell the disciples, they don't understand it. That's your goal in this world that we walk in right now. Because each one of you has a different perspective on life, on your relationship with the Lord. Each one of you has had a place where Christ has met you in your life, and you now have a unique opportunity. Maybe you've been left on this earth to reach exactly one person, uniquely, wonderfully, specifically. Maybe some of you have been called to become pastors. Maybe some of you, leaders in the church. But I can tell you this. Every one of you matters to the kingdom. 100% of you. So what happened? You know, it's interesting because the apostles were Hebrews. They really should have known. And in fact, again, one of the great marvels of the Dead Sea Scrolls and that find, those young shepherd boys in the mid-1940s tossing rocks into the caves on the sea, on the edge of the Dead Sea, they're in the little tiny community, the Essen community of Qumran. When that breaking of pottery sound occurs and those scrolls are brought forth as they bring them out of the caves one by one as they're gone through, and it took a little more than 20 years to investigate most of the scrolls and their fragments. By the time it was all said and done, every single prophetic passage in the Old Testament there is a copy of in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Whether that's the prophet Isaiah or Daniel, the writings of David, the full book of Psalms is contained several times in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and those authors wrote the original writings were between 1050 B.C. and 460 B.C., nearly 500 years before Jesus was born. And those copies of those scrolls all dated secularly to roughly 200 years B.C. So those copies of those scrolls represent about as great a body of historical evidence that anyone could ever ask for. You, you could have said until they were discovered, well, you know, we don't really know that there was a prophet Isaiah who wrote before Jesus. Maybe it was written after Jesus was here. And they just kind of plagiarized the things that happened and put them into a book form. There are people that believe that. You may have actually had people say that to you. If you watch the Discovery Channel, they say it on a fairly regular, regular basis. Amen? But not so anymore. So what did those passages say? Psalm 16.10 For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, speaking of the Messiah, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Jesus went to Sheol. He went to the abode of the dead, but He didn't stay there. Three days later, He left. Death could not hold. That limestone tomb could not hold. Hold him exactly as David wrote 1,000 years earlier. Psalm 17:15. As for me, speaking again of the Messiah, and when you think of these things in a messianic sense, you need to go to the Jewish understanding. These are messianic psalms. They believed that Messiah would come, and they believed these things would be true of the Messiah. As for me. I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. That's speaking of eternal life, is it not? Because you can't be dead 
and be alive unless you're alive in Christ, in Messiah. Again, a thousand years before Jesus stepped out of that tomb. Psalm 30, verse 3, O Lord, You brought my soul up from the grave. You have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. Again, messianic. Jesus is alive. Daniel 12.2 Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. You know what that's saying, amen? Notice it says many, not all. To as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God, the children of God, the daughters of God. Many, but not all, will become God's kids. It goes on to say, some to everlasting life. Notice the some. Not all, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. You see, the choice is ours, always has been. The choice is yours, the choice is mine, whether you look in and believe, or whether you look in and reject the truth of the gospel message. Two, two destinations, two roads, one broad, one narrow. Hell, heaven, the choice of all humanity. It's what Easter is all about. If Jesus is not raised, there is no eternal life. And if there's no eternal life, then we are all, at the very best, going to vanish from existence. As a Buddhist believes, our, our candle would be snuffed out. We go off into that grand cosmic consciousness and become part of the one. But if your Bible's right and the evidence is overwhelmingly clear, millions upon millions upon 2.65 million people claim, excuse me, billion people claim today to be Christians. Believe this story. Hosea chapter 13, verse 14, For I will ransom them from the power of the grave. What did Jesus do on Calvary's cross? Hosea wrote 500 years before Jesus came to this earth. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Is that not what Jesus did? Specifically what he did? O death, where is your plagues? O grave, where is your destruction? You see, for most people, the grave's kind of a gnarly thing, amen? If you don't believe that, look at all the zombie movies. It's like nobody ever pops out of those zombie movie grave things looking all that good. It's destruction. The body begins to decay and... You know, it's like, I, I, you know, I, I actually find cemeteries, quite frankly, to be somewhat morbid. You know, I, I, I just got to be honest with you. Like, that, that's not you. The real you is not there. If you're a believer, you're in the presence of the Lord. That is exactly what this passage says. It's what, that's what these things are saying. Look, you're going to go back to dust. The power of the grave has no hold over those who are Christ's. We're going to be alive, transformed. Where's your destruction, grave? Well, the grave can have the earthly components of the tent that you currently wander around in, but that's not the real you. And God's quite capable of raising back to life anyone and everyone. I get into conversations every once in a while with people about the dispensation of the tent that we currently occupy. Look, if God can't raise up, if God can't raise up your body from whatever state it ends up in, we're all in trouble. Amen? So whether you end up a, a pile of ash or whether you get vaporized in a nuclear explosion, I had a lady tell me this, well, how am I going to be resurrected if I get nuked? I'm pretty sure the God that created the universe knows where your atoms go, okay? 
It's not about that hole in the ground that may contain your tent. It's about the soul, the spirit of you that's the real you. God is more than able. And through Him we are more than conquerors. Amen? Through Him who loves us. But where did He go? Mark chapter 16 says in verse 6, But He, the angel on the stone, said to them, Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. But He was crucified. But He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they'd laid Him. Go ahead, look for yourself. But go and tell the disciples. And Peter, I love the way Mark records that. Go and tell the disciples and tell Peter too, because he needs some extra encouragement. (laughs) That he's going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him, as he said to you. Remember Jesus said that. He said, I'll see you later. Go into Galilee. Meet you there. And it's exactly what he did. Matthew 28, verse 6 says, He's not here, he's risen, as he said. Come and see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell the disciples, for he has risen from the dead. Indeed, he is going before you into all Galilee, and there you will see him. And behold, I have told you these things. John chapter 20 and verse 3, it says, Peter therefore went out with the other disciples. And so you can see the foot race here. The ladies have come back with the initial report. The guys were afraid to be at the... I believe that with all my heart. I think the, the disciples were like, man, we don't know what's going... That's why they didn't believe. Jesus is dead. They put him in it. This is just too much for our hearts right now. Too much for our minds. Too much for our souls. We're not, I'm not going to go down there and see whether the stone's still there or, God forbid, look in and see my Savior inside of a rock tomb. I'm not doing that. The ladies head down with some expectation. And then Peter and the other disciple were going to the tomb, but they both ran together. And the other disciple, I love this. This is like bragging without bragging. The other disciple was faster than Peter. Outran Peter. And came to the tomb first. It's like, yes. Beat him. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, and he did not go in. And then came Simon Peter following and went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head. So see, you see the difference here. Jesus had been wrapped head to toe in two stages, all the way to the neck with the otheon and the head cloth wrapped around him. So there were two complete pieces. Jesus passed through both, and both were lying separately where they had been on Jesus' body. But the linen cloths folded together in a place by itself. And then the other disciple who came to the tomb first. You see, at first he goes, it's like, ah, I can't look. And Peter goes in. John comes back in and notice what happens. And he also went in and he saw and believed. For yet as they did not know the Scripture that you must rise again from the dead, they had not been listening. Isn't it funny how people can come to church for sometimes their whole life and never get it? I've bumped into people like that. Bumped into people that really don't know who Jesus is. They've been coming to church for years. And then the light bulb just goes on. And then the disciples went away again into their own homes. Were they perplexed? They absolutely were. They were looking at this whole scene, gazing at it, and going, man, what is up with this? It's interesting, the inference here in the original language is this. That as they were looking at those linen cloths, the separate and unique placement of each of them was in such a way that there's only one way that Jesus could have gotten out of that tomb by passing right through the grave clothes. By leaving them behind, so to speak. And in doing so, they were left as if they were untouched. If you go to the garden tomb today, and we're not totally certain that that is the actual tomb, but it is fairly likely. If you go there today, you'll see a stone niche, just a a cutout in the rock. 
and on the opposite side a tomb that was dug much later. But in that little rough-hewn tomb, there wouldn't have been any room for anybody else to be in there except the person who placed them inside of the grave. It's tiny. It's dinky. And so what happens? The, The grave clothes weren't all mixed up together. If Jesus had gotten out his Swiss army knife and kind of made a little hole, then somehow gotten a hold of one of the ends, if he had simply swooned or passed out, or if he had not been dead, which is one of the common stories that people toss out. Well, Jesus wasn't really dead. Very, very, very unlikely that a professional Roman executioner whose job it was to kill people, whose job would have been terminated with extreme prejudice had they failed at that job, who would have themselves lost their life for not finishing said job, it's not likely that Jesus was alive. It's almost an impossibility. And really, to some degree, it is an impossibility, just from the beating alone. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever had a back problem. Back in the old days, they used to give you these back braces that, that went about from your waist all the way to the middle of your chest. And if you had a back problem, like I did, they would give you these back braces, and on them were straps and buckles and rope and just everything. You, you could lace them up, and eventually what would happen is you could get them so tight that your diaphragm could no longer expand and contract. So let's just give it to the fact that maybe Jesus survived the whole thing. Once he was wrapped in those grave clothes, remember, a 100 pounds of spices, some 30 pounds of cloth, Jesus has now got his arms on his chest. That's the normal way that they were wrapped, kind of like the mummy thing, okay? And he's wrapped up in those bandages, glued together with a sticky substance called aloe and myrrh. Those two things put together. You ever seen what tree sap does when it hardens? That's why you can't get it off your windshield. He's been in there three days, stuck in this. If nothing else, he didn't go into hypersleep. He wasn't put into some kind of chamber you see in the movies, you know, to where he's like kind of, sort of, not quite dead. So if he was in fact placed in that tomb, as the grave clothes indicate, and was witnessed by professional Roman guards, he was then wrapped up, he would have suffocated. So if he was alive when he went in, he for sure was dead within a few minutes of the wrapping of those garments. And so John sees this position of these burial wrappings, and he he looks at that head napkin, the, the turban. And because it's sitting in two different places, he goes, he is alive, exactly as he said. The evidence was overwhelming. Had a grave robber come in, they would have unwrapped him. They would have done, they would have been looking for stuff inside of the grave clothes because that's where they were normally placed. If there was a ring, it was left on the finger. If they owned some kind of possession, it was normally wrapped inside and was left with them. So if it had been somebody who said, hey, let's, you know, he hasn't been in there too long. Let's go in there and get his stuff. They would have scattered those grave clothes everywhere. That couldn't have happened. He definitely wasn't resuscitated. Somebody didn't go in there with a shock cart if you're in, in nursing or if you're a doctor and you're his, they didn't bring in the crash cart and get out the paddles. Clear! That didn't happen. Nobody's in there giving Jesus mouth to mouth. They didn't, like you see in the movies, which rarely works, by the way. He was dead. 100% dead. And now he's 100% alive. You see, as all these things unfolded, you start to think back on some of the things that Jesus had said to the disciples. In John chapter 14, it's recorded of Jesus. Because they were discussing, you know, kind of what's going to happen. You know, you keep saying, from the disciples' perspective, some of the stuff that Jesus was saying was a little out there, amen? Think about it. Somebody walks up to you and says, you know, I'm going to die and be raised three days later. You're kind of like, huh? What? 
No, 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 no. You're going to go set up your glorious kingdom. You're going to defeat the Romans. It's just going to be awesome. We're going to rule and reign with you. Matter of fact, I, John, am going to be one of the greatest. That was their position, wasn't it? They were arguing about it, so much so that the Sons of Thunder got their mama involved to stick up for them. Permit it be so that one of my sons sit on your right and the other one on your left. That was the discussion that was being had. And yet Jesus said, Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Matter of fact, the one who among you desires to be the greatest needs to become the servant of all. Can you drink this cup that I'm about to drink? Guess which cup he was talking about. The cup of his blood, the death that he was going to endure, the beating he would take. Can you drink of that cup? Oh, Lord, where you go, we'll go. Remember Peter's declarations? I'll never deny you. You and me were like this. You can see him making hand signals. Talking to Jesus. Probably even got out a, a piece of parchment and started to write down, Here is my promise to you. Hands to Jesus. I, we don't know. But I can tell you this. We didn't have a clue. They did not know. And so, in John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus speaking, says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. For in my father's house, now do you think he was talking about Joseph? Probably not. Yeah, my dad's place in Nazareth. It's like a 10 by 10 room, and it has donkeys inside at night. Not talking about that house. For in my father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. you. You see, they're all spinning around in their heads trying to figure out what's going on. This guy's got a death wish or something. We're not given total insight into what the disciples were thinking at this time, but we know they did not get it. They're thinking, where's he going? What's he doing? What is, he, what is this all about? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. You realize what he's saying. He's giving them a picture. Look, I'm leaving. My father's house is not here. It's there. And I am going there to prepare a place for you. And I'm coming again to receive you unto myself. And whether he does that one at a time as we take our last breath and to be absent from the body is present with the Lord, or whether we all go together, which would be my preference today. Amen? I'd love to hear that trumpet sound. We'll have a little, you know, little, you talk about the space race of the 60s. Here we are meeting our Lord in the heavens. That where I am, you may be also. And then he says something that gets them thinking. And where I go, you know. And the way, you know. And we don't know what he was doing, but maybe he was going like this, pointing at himself. Because he would go on to say, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life, in verse 6 of that same chapter, and no one goes to the Father but by me. And they're still thinking, where'd he go? What happened? You know, the theories that get tossed around and bantered about, you know, he was a ghost or he had a, you know, a resurrection was like kind of like resuscitation. All of those things. He was reincarnated. You have a lot of people thinking that Jesus was reincarnated. Mormons have a totally different Jesus. He kind of somehow appeared to the Aztecs, the Mayans, and the Incans. Isn't that what they believe? He went to Mesoamerica. He's wandering around down there with Cortez and the guys, you know. Oh, hi, I'm Jesus. Didn't happen. The book of Colossians said he is the preeminent one, the firstborn of all of creation. He's one of one. 
He's both Savior and Lord. He is God incarnate in human flesh, and he was a child born to Mary and Joseph. Resurrection's not a state of mind either. You know, it's interesting, really interesting when you start to, to talk to people who have different religious faiths. You talk to Hindus or you talk to Buddhists. They start talking about, well, you know, maybe he's just part of nirvana. Or maybe he's part of mushka. He's just kind of part of the giant cosmic consciousness. And one day you're going to be just like that. No, one day I'm going to be like Jesus. For reals, as it were. Not going to be some Christ-like consciousness that I'm going to reach. I'm literally going to be glorified with our King. And one day I'm coming back to this earth on my own white stallion with Him. One day you, as a child of God, are going to rule and reign with Christ. Now, you're not going to deserve it, neither am I. But the fact of the matter is, because He is raised, so will we be raised. It wasn't just a vision. Remember what they're saying. They didn't get it. Matter of fact, when Jesus finally did appear to them, they're kind of like walking right past him. And he's going, hey, it's me. And that's because Paul, as he wrote to the church at Corinth, reminded us the bodies that we're going to have after these are a little different than the ones you currently occupy. And for that, I am grateful. I don't know what they're going to be. Some people ask me, they go, what's it, you know, what's it going to be like? It's going to be, you know, somehow able to transit through time, what we call time. You're going to have abilities you don't currently have. I'm no longer going to have back pain every day. And I'm going to have flowing locks of hair. (laughs) I'm doing the Jesus hair thing for a while. For a while. We don't know. Scripture simply says, when we see Him, we will be like Him. So whatever that is, that's what we're going to be. I know this. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be beyond our thinking. You know, when people talk about these things that they have objection to. It's interesting to me that the same people that have massive objections to Jesus being raised from the dead believe in the Big Bang, generally speaking. They have no problem believing that there is a theory, by the way, not proven fact or science, because we can't go back 3.7 billion years into the primordial cosmos and look at it, so messed up ultimately is the, theolog- or the, the theoretical position of, of believing in a Big Bang that up until about 20 years ago, uh, we had no explanation for the gravity that holds our universe together. And so in order to compensate for that, two things have come up. Dark matter and dark energy. Oddly enough, you can't see either one of them. It is not observable. So when someone says to you, I believe in the Big Bang, what they believe in is the largest necessity of faith that's ever been perpetrated on humankind. That the seed of the universe, which at a time was smaller than an atom, exploded, and that explosion created the entire universe that we now, including all of you, I can't imagine condensing me down to one atom, much less the whole universe. And then through an explosion, somehow massive order came to the universe. Normally when I stick a firecracker inside of an aluminum can, a boom! It is not order, amen? And yet somehow this gigantic explosion that occurred in the primordial beginning nanosecond of the cosmos created 
galaxies and star systems and worlds and all of the things necessary for life, and they floated out in space for billions of years, and somehow Mr. Part of Liver met Mr. Spleen, and they all got together. You see, people believe that because some professor told them it's so, and yet it's not observable science. It is a theory. But they won't believe the eyewitnesses of those who saw Jesus beaten nearly to death, and then saw Jesus nailed to a cross, then saw Jesus taken down off that cross, and were engaged in wrapping that body in grave clothes, sticking him in a grave, and then saw that same Jesus after he was resurrected, and then wrote those things themselves as firsthand eyewitnesses to the fact. So on one hand, you have those who believe in the Big Bang, which we did not see any part of it. All we have is the supposed remnants of those actions, 13.7 billion years after the fact, and yet for 2,000 years, millions upon millions, they're still dying today for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I will not deny my Savior. The Gospels were authored by eyewitnesses. The best information that we can ever have is that of eyewitness information. Amen? You go into a court of law, you have somebody that actually saw what happened. That's the magic bullet. That's the golden gun. That is the thing that trumps everything else. I saw person A shoot person B. When that happens, you now have to disprove the eyewitness account. Nobody's ever disproved the eyewitness account of the gospel record. And it bears witness to what was written almost a millennia before it happened. The very same things that the Old Testament said would happen, happened to Jesus. And in many cases, before those processes were even invented. And so people say, well, you know, there's just no historic... Yes, there's historical evidence. It's called eyewitness accounts of those who were at that particular venue, saw the events occur, and then wrote them down. Well, it's just paper. There's not a single person in here who ever met Napoleon. Amen? If you have, you're really old. None of you have met George Washington. You, you, you know about Abraham Lincoln. Maybe you've seen some of his photos. He was not the most photogenic person ever. You've seen some things. You, you could go back in your history book, but most of you have absolutely zero firsthand knowledge of anything that you absolutely believe about history. So why is it that people have a tough time with Jesus? Because of the inescapable conclusion that if Jesus defeated death and raised himself from the dead, there is, in fact, only one way to heaven. That's why they object. It's not for lack of evidence. The evidence is actually very clear. As people ponder these things, they generally come to one of these two conclusions. They either see, hear, understand, and believe, or they reject it for some reason that is only known to them, generally speaking. But my Jesus is alive. And he lives forevermore. And I have, I, I really have to exercise a lot less faith to believe in a risen Savior than to believe that the whole universe came from nothing. It's not, it, it, it's, I gotta tell you, it is impossible for me to believe that at some point in time the entire universe was condensed down to the space of a single atom. That is impossible. All matter. That takes a lot of faith. Way more faith than I have. And I haven't met anybody that's 13.7 billion years old yet that was there. I have met four gospel authors that were there. Their historical account 
bears witness to the prophetic account that was spoken before it ever happened. And from there till now, countless millions upon millions upon millions of people have believed the same truths from day one to this day. Because the history of it is true. Because Jesus Christ was a real figure. Because Jesus Christ was killed by the Romans. Because Jesus Christ was nailed to a cross. Because Jesus Christ was placed in a tomb. And because that tomb today is empty. And he is risen. I want to encourage you. History is not like mathematics. It's not. And what we believe in all other historical accounts is evidentially clear in the historical account of Jesus. There's more than enough history for us to say that's just as likely as Caesar crossing the Rubicon. It's easy. You can look at those things and go, yeah, that happened. Most of you in this room, if you've read uh, European history, you read Greek history, you believe that Homer crossed the Alps with a bunch of elephants, right? It's in your history book. It's got to be true. Jesus is alive. And he lives forevermore. The evidence is clear. Where did he go? Well, for about 40 days, he stayed on the earth. And in some cases, he was seen by 500 people at once. Those 500 people all took that to their graves, never denying him. The disciples, the same thing. Every one of them lost their life for the testimony. Read the book of Revelation. Imprisoned John was on the island of Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's the reason he was there. Now, I'm kind of thinking if that was a lie, I'd be going, nah, I don't believe that. Nobody's going to stay in prison for the rest of their life for a lie. That's why you see people trying to get out all the time when they think that there's been some falsehood in their trial. Amen? He who the Son is set free is free indeed. And indeed, Jesus is risen. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the marvel of Easter, Lord, for the resurrection that occurred that day, a a once-in-all-of-time event, Lord, and in doing so, bringing that to us, Lord, that you literally, as Isaiah declared, fathered eternity. Lord, to as many as believed, to those of us who've received, to all have called upon the name of the Lord, indeed we are saved. And one day... We too will step out of time and into eternity. And in your presence, we know because your word declares is the fullness of joy and we can't wait. Lord, we pray that those maybe here in this place today that find no problem believing in the Big Bang would believe in the Big God. Lord, the marvelous Savior, the wonderful one, the one who loves us with an undying love. We praise you. We thank you, we bless you, and thank you, Father God, for sending Jesus to this earth to pay the ransom for our sin that we might be the children of God. We love you, we praise you, we thank you. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand?